Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Most of my shows are about interviewing authors and the books that they have written. Some are about history, others about our laws and how the courts may change the intent of the Congress that passed those laws. Some are about private prisons, others are about politics from its rawest form to the not-so-nuanced politics of today. Voting and voting suppression are topics we, that we have also taken up. With this show, we are delving into economics and monetary policy. My guest today is Scott Sumner, author of the deep and interesting book, The Money Illusion, Market Monetarism, The Great Recession, and the Future of Monetary Policy. Scott Sumner is the Ralph G. Hawtrey Chair of Monetary Policy at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He is the author of The Midas Paradox, Financial Markets, Government Policy Shocks, and the Great Depression, and the economic blog, The Money Illusion. I am very pleased to welcome Scott Sumner to Politics, A Love Story. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, I just want to set the table here with uh, something that you laid out so we, everybody listening might further understand what it is that we're talking about. You start off the book, I think this is in your introduction, Money, market monetarism is the idea that the Fed's policy should be guided by market forecasts, not by the Fed's complex mathematical models of the economy. By 2019, it was clear that the Fed's internal models have proved unreliable. Is that a true statement? Yes, I think it is. Um, Fed policy in 2019 was, I think, clearly being guided by market indicators. And I think because of that, uh, we were able to avoid uh, a big problem in 2019. Unfortunately, uh, the COVID crisis you know, happened in 2020, but... I think policy has been becoming more effective because of this increased reliance on market indicators. So um, one of the things uh, that I hadn't uh, – see, I have 12 pages of of what I call notes, quotes, and questions. So I got a lot out of this book, and uh, we won't have time to go into all of those things. And something else I thought of on my way over to the studio this morning was something that – I don't know that you had it in your book or I even saw it anywhere, but what I'm talking about is uh, deficit spending and how does it affect everything. We won't talk about that now, but I just want to put it in the back of your mind for something before we end. We could then see if monetarism has anything to do with that. In the meantime, I think you talk about in the book often about NGDP and our GDP. So that's nominal gross domestic product. That's the total dollar value of all goods and services produced domestically in a given period of time. And real GDP is nominal GDP adjusted for changes in the price level to factor out the effects of inflation. Are those two terms used interchangeably or are they separate and distinct in almost every way? Well, they're very different concepts. Um, They sound similar because GDP appears in both of them. But real GDP, you should visualize as if you were looking at the economy in a physical sense. You know, all the factories producing goods, the services produced, and all the economic activity that occurs in a physical sense is real GDP. 
nominal is the value of all that economic activity measured in, say, dollar terms. Now, it is true that for the United States, over the business cycle, both of these tend to move somewhat in tandem. So during a recession, you tend to see a slump in real and nominal GDP growth occurring at the same time. And during a boom, they often go up. So people in America, I think, often don't really, um, they're not aware necessarily of the importance of the distinction between these two types of GDP. But if you were in a country that had hyperinflation, then the difference would be obvious. A place like uh, Zimbabwe or Venezuela, where the inflation rate uh, reaches astronomical proportions, in those countries, you often have falling real GDP, that is less actual physical output, but nominal GDP going up very dramatically because of the inflation. So the money value of their output is very high, but the actual real value is often quite low. So it's, it's really in those countries where it's easiest for the average person to spot the difference between um, real GDP and the nominal or money value of that output. Uh, you also pointed out, uh, if you want to picture nominal GDP, you might visualize a huge pile of dollar bills. That's a monetary concept. If you want to picture our GDP or real GDP, you might imagine thousands of factories, shopping malls, office buildings, and homes, and of course, millions of workers providing services. Yeah, that, that's right. And uh, the the problem we have with these two concepts is that when the media talks about GDP, almost always the news reports are implicitly referring to real GDP. So you might tune in the radio and they say, you know, GDP was up 2% in the third quarter, uh, 2% annual rate. Well, they're referring to real GDP. Nominal GDP rose at an almost 8% rate in the third quarter because we had quite high inflation during that period. And the reason that's a little bit unfortunate is most other economic variables, the default is the nominal. Like if the news media talks about interest rates, they almost always mean the nominal rate, the actual rate you'd see you know, on a bank deposit or a bank loan, not the rate adjusted for inflation. And that's true of exchange rates or just about any variable that is discussed in the media. If they simply talk about the variable, they implicitly mean the nominal or the money value of it. But with real GDP, the media always talks about, um, I'm sorry, with GDP, the media always defaults to real GDP if they don't say otherwise. So it does create a little bit of confusion. And I think that's why most people don't really maybe pay a lot of attention to the distinction between those two is because the media is subtly pushing their attention towards the real variable. That's the one they report. And I, I, I should also add here that um, the real variable is important for a reason. The reason the media focuses on it is ultimately our living standards do depend on our real output. So to have higher living standards, we'd have to produce more goods and services and uh, achieve a higher standard of living. But for analyzing monetary policy, which is my you know, area of focus in this book, it's really the nominal GDP that is more informative because movements in nominal GDP are what cause big swings in unemployment and also cause financial crises. It's, it's really the nominal GDP that is most important in determining the path of the business cycle. And I think um, I'm speaking for, for myself and for a few others, maybe, but most people don't pay much attention to this because they don't understand it. 
Right. So let's bring it to a more a human, everyday level. So these variables are for the whole U.S. economy, which is, you know, like trying to visualize the galaxy. You know, it's beyond our comprehension <laughs> when you talk about a $22 trillion economy. So what they really add up, though, is in a sense the total gross income in the economy. Because as we buy goods and services, we create income for those selling them. So um, you can also think of this in terms of your own income. Uh, you know, nominal GDP is sort of like the income of everyone in the economy lumped together. Um, it's a little different because of technical issues, but it's basically that kind of concept. So at the individual level, your nominal income is how much you're paid on your job in dollars. And then your real income, you have to kind of subtract out inflation to see how well you're actually doing. Are you getting a pay increase that, you know, uh, offsets the effect of inflation or not to see whether you're doing better in real terms? So if you think of it at a personal level, like if you got a 5% raise on your job, that would be your nominal income going up 5%. If during that year inflation was 3%, then economists would say that your real income only went up by 2% because you subtract the 3% inflation from the 5% nominal pay increase. And that's true equally for the whole U.S. economy. If our nominal economy is 5% bigger, but we have 3% inflation, then our real GDP growth is only 2%. So maybe that example makes the, the distinction a little clearer. Well, I think, though, that what we probably all need is our own in-home uh, economist to help explain all these various concepts to them, because um, I don't know that anyone really sits down and tries to figure this out. Uh, if you are part of an association or a union, they explain that. And so then you might have a somewhat of an understanding. But most people, hmm, uh, econo economics is beyond their ken, I believe. Uh, one of the things that I found very interesting that you pointed out was that if we average out nominal uh, gross domestic product growth and inflation, we find that monetary policy during the period 2008 to 2013 was the tightest, tightest since Herbert Hoover was president at the outset of the Great Depression. Wow, that would need some explaining for us to be able to understand all that. Right. So, and that is sort of a controversial claim. So what I'm looking at is the effective stance of the policy. To a lot of people, including a lot of economists, the policy looked expansionary because the actual money supply was being increased and interest rates were fairly low. But those indicators don't really tell us um, much useful about the stance of monetary policy. Um, let me give you an example for interest rates, for instance. Um, in, again, in the media, high interest rates are often described as tight money and low interest rates are easy money. But that's not really very accurate because when you have a very expansionary monetary policy, which creates inflation, interest rates actually tend to go up. And this is what happened in America back in the 1960s and 70s when we uh, had a very inflationary monetary policy. So interest rates move around for many reasons. And what I do is I focus on growth in nominal GDP and uh by that metric, we had very, very weak growth in nominal GDP over that five-year period, basically the lowest since about the early 1930s. And so effectively, monetary policy was having a contractionary impact. The Fed may have felt it was doing some things, 
that were expansionary, but it wasn't having that effect. Maybe an analogy of someone driving a car would be helpful. You may be driving a car towards a big mountain range. As you start going up the hill, you may be pushing harder on the accelerator, but your car is actually slowing down. So effectively, your policy in terms of driving the car is a slowing policy, even though the foot on the accelerator is pushing a little bit harder. And that's kind of what was going on with the, the Fed. So if, if we use that analogy of driving a car, I'm sort of recommending a, a steady speed for nominal GDP growth. And so the, the actual policy was allowing nominal GDP growth to slow. The Fed wasn't doing enough. Excuse me. So in that sense, it was effectively contractionary in terms of its impact, because when you slow the growth of growth of nominal GDP, it leads to higher unemployment and also to more people um, unable to repay debts. And you get often a financial crisis occurring. Several times in the book, you pointed out that steadiness uh, in policy and execution of that policy are really the best things in most cases. But then you point out several times in the book that economists have sometimes been described as historians. They can tell us what has happened, but not what is happening. Are there tools now available that can see things in real time? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good... I think what you're referring to is the fact that I think we see some of our past mistakes more clearly than the current mistakes. So, for instance, I think if you talk to most economists, they have a pretty good idea of what we did wrong in the Great Depression when monetary policy was too contractionary. They have a pretty good idea of what we did wrong during the high inflation of the 1970s when monetary policy was too expansionary. So these things become clear in retrospect with more research and studying. But at the time, there's a lot of what I call cognitive illusions. That's like an optical illusion in terms of thinking about what's going on. And that's because often we confuse the symptoms of what's happening with the underlying causes. So my argument in the book is during the Great Recession, it was being misdiagnosed by most economists because they were thinking that the symptoms were the cause. And some of those symptoms uh, included the banking crisis of late 2008. This was right after Lehman Brothers failed, and there was almost a freeze-up of the global banking system. And there was, of course, the federal government bailouts and so on. So I think the standard view among economists is that this basically was the cause of the Great Recession. My view is a little different. I, I see the banking crisis as a symptom, something caused by the decline in nominal GDP, which was ultimately produced by monetary policy mistakes. But those were not visible at the time. It's, it's only, I think, in retrospect that we sometimes see problems more clearly than, than right at the time. Do you have any idea what the percentage of economists who thought that the Great Recession was not caused by tight money? That is one of the things that you're saying, that it was caused by tight money. But what of your colleagues, how, what percentage of them uh, think that uh, it was not caused by that? I would say probably over 99%. Whoa. So, so I'm, I'm very much a contrarian. You're, you're talking to a contrarian here. <laughs> Not just slightly contrarian, but wow. Um, but, but just to, uh, if, if, if I could have a moment here. Yeah, of course. Um, there's, a, there's a number of points I could make that would, I think, suggest that I'm not necessarily uh, 
sort of a crackpot, even though I'm in the small minority. And let me just mention a, a couple right off the bat. So I, in late 2008, I said monetary policy was too tight. I said that at the time. Now, if you read Ben Bernanke's memoir, in his memoir written years later, he was, of course, the Fed chair at the time, uh, Federal Reserve chair. Bernanke says, you know, in retrospect, monetary policy was too tight after Lehman Brothers failed in September 2008, right? Another thing that I was saying at the time is that we need to have uh, a policy of uh, essentially sort of averaging inflation over the long run so that if we have lower than target inflation some years, it should be offset by higher than target inflation during other years, and that this would help us recover more quickly from the recession. So this is something that I and other market monetarists said at the time. Now, in 2020, the Fed basically adopted this approach, not exactly what we're saying, but they adopted something called flexible average inflation targeting, and they justified it by saying this will allow us to recover, have employment recover more quickly than during the Great Recession, when in retrospect, we didn't do enough stimulus. Okay, so they're saying in 2020, yeah, in retrospect, the things some market monetarists were recommending in 2020, I'm sorry, back in the Great Recession, it was correct. And now in 2020, we're going to adopt this new policy. Lo and behold, the unemployment rate fell much more quickly in recovery from this recession than in the Great Recession, a recovery which was quite slow. A third point I could make is that the initial recession, when it first hit, was widely assumed that it was going to be much worse in America than in Europe, because we were the one that had the huge subprime crisis and the huge banking crisis, subprime mortgage crisis. So if you go back and read the news, financial news at the very beginning, everybody seemed to assume it was going to be worse in America than in Europe. Now, in Europe, monetary policy was actually much more contractionary than in the United States. So according to my theory, if it was monetary policy, the recession should have been worse in Europe, even though if it was a banking crisis, it should have been worse in America. Well, the recession turned out to be much worse in Europe, even though the thing that 99% of economists think caused the recession, the subprime banking, you know, mortgage and banking crisis in America, was actually much worse here. So uh, I just want to point out that um, in a number of respects, the way things have played out, both internationally and in future monetary policy and in the writing of Ben Bernanke, has tended to confirm at least some of the points that we were making at the time, which were quite minority viewpoints when we made them. Like when I was making these arguments in 2008 and 9, uh, I was definitely, you know, an outlier. So, um, yeah, I, I realize that your listeners should rightfully be uh, skeptical of the things I'm saying because I am in the minority. But on the other hand, there are some very specific things I point to in the book, uh, and even things that happened after the book was written, like the 2020 policy change by the Fed, which do tend to, you know, support some of the points that myself and other market monetarists have been making for 12, 13 years. But that, that not everyone accepts uh, market monetarism. Uh, you're a proponent. Yeah, it's a very minority view. It's, it's, we're a small group, basically. But you've been able to back up your statements with actual uh, points, uh, whereas if somebody uh, just makes a, a wild uh, um, statement about how things are or, or how that person sees it, 
without any backup, well, uh, I would tend to respect their views less than I do yours. You have backed up what you said. Yeah, let me give you an analogy from another field. Um, during the COVID epidemic, there's a lot of people that have unconventional theories, right, propounding this or that view that are maybe different from scientists. So people should probably rightfully be skeptical if it's, uh, you know, a minority view they just read on the Internet, someone propounding uh, on, on this particular topic. But on the other hand, if things play out in a certain way, you might take these views more seriously. Like there was a, an economist um, named Alex Tabarrok that was very early on advocating uh, for the vaccines to be done spaced widely apart, not three weeks apart, but like eight or nine weeks apart. He said doing it this way would result in more lives being saved. And, you know, you might say, well, the experts of the FDA and CDC have decided three or four weeks separation is better than a long separation between the two shots. But later, but it turns out that other countries like Britain and Canada did do what he suggested, and it looks like they got lower death rates as a result. So when things play out in the real world in, in a way consistent with a fairly uh, a contrarian view, that does add credence to the view beyond what it would be if you just you know heard someone on the internet making a claim that was at variance to the conventional wisdom. So I think you really need to look at any claim and then look at evidence outside of that claim that either supports or tends to refute that particular point of view before you take it seriously. Uh, just a few minutes ago, you were talking about the reason that Europeans uh, did less well uh, in the Great Recession than did the mm -hmm. United States. And we chose stimulation. And uh, what uh, Europeans uh, did was chose um, austerity. And they weren't willing to put forth the amount of money necessary to get them out of, of the problem. Now, on the other hand, there are those people in this country that said we were way too low. Instead of being close to a trillion, we should have been closer to two trillion and we would have gotten out of the recession. And here's one last point on this is you said that we came out of uh, the Great Depression faster because we did different things. But in hearing what the naysayers are saying is that we didn't come out fast enough. We should have come out a lot faster if we were doing the right things. But I think and we'll talk about this, that the stimulus should have been higher, as you mentioned just a little while ago. And we didn't do it. And the, I'm going to talk about one word that creates the problems for all these things, politics. Politics right. prevent so now, us from doing what we should be doing. Well, so there's two issues here that we have to disentangle. One is what's called monetary stimulus, and one is fiscal stimulus. Um, the difference between the two policies is this. Monetary policy, which is run by the Fed, involves the creation of new money, the economy. Fiscal policy, which is run by Congress and the president, involves taking existing money and redirecting it. So you might take tax money and spend it, or you might borrow, and this is the fiscal stimulus you're referring to. So many economists recommend borrowing and then spending during a recession to create a faster recovery. That's called fiscal stimulus. That's taking money that already exists in the economy and either taxing it and borrowing it and then spending it somewhere else. What I'm referring to in my book, I'm focusing on monetary policy, which involves 
the creation of new money or a reduction in the money supply if you're trying to control inflation. And um, keeping that policy at an appropriate level. And that's the one that I think that we did better in um, 2020 than in the Great Recession. Uh, you could make the same argument for fiscal, by the way, and, and a lot of economists have done that, too, that we did more fiscal stimulus than last time around. Um, and also with monetary policy, and here I think the distinction is particularly notable, with the Europe-America comparison, I think the big difference was monetary policy. So the Fed, with its QE programs and so on, was definitely more focused on monetary stimulus than, than Europe. Um, there were some differences in fiscal policy as well, but they, I don't think they were nearly as large as the difference in monetary policy. So um, anyway, but those two policies often get lumped together in people's mind because we, we tend to use terms like money vaguely, like the government's pumping a lot of money into the economy. Well, what does that really mean? Does that mean creating new money through the Federal Reserve System? Or does pumping money in mean borrowing money through budget deficits and spending it? And the terms often are used interchangeably, but the borrowing and spending is called fiscal policy uh, by economists, and the creation of new money by the Fed is, is called monetary policy. So, so that's, that's an important distinction. So uh, with this new uh, infrastructure bill that was passed, it's going to cost $1.2 mm -hmm. trillion, and there's another one that may or may not be passed within the next few weeks. That's going to pump, and I'm speaking as a, just a layperson, and uh, right. the, the distinctions you make are harder to think about and to make in, in our minds, the lay community. But right. what, and you mentioned him, and I'm talking about Paul Krugman, almost a dozen times in your book. And what he says is that if there is a very low or negative or near negative interest rate, that is the time to borrow as much as you need to improve the infrastructure because if you employ a million or two million people in jobs rebuilding the infrastructure, they're going to pay taxes on those better paying jobs. And so the net effect is not a huge deficit, which is what the other side refers to, but it will be almost evened out with maybe a slight increase in the overall national debt. Is what I'm saying making any sense? Yeah, that's that's Krugman's view, um, uh, Paul Krugman's view. I'm a little bit more skeptical of the efficacy of effectiveness of, mon of fiscal policy. I, I tend to favor monetary policy. Uh, the differences between us are not necessarily that dramatic because during the Great Recession, Paul Krugman also said monetary policy should be more expansionary. So if we, if we look kind of at the overall policy stance, combining the two, is it expansionary enough or not? Both Paul Krugman and I agreed it was not expansionary enough and that we weren't doing enough to lower the unemployment rate quick, quickly enough and so on. His own preference uh, leaned more towards what's called fiscal stimulus, which would be something like the bill you just cited. Um, and, you know, my own preference would be focusing on using monetary policy more for you know reasons I could get into. But let me just say one other thing about stimulus right now. I'm not sure that the current bills, the two bills being discussed in Congress, are actually motivated that much any longer by stimulus. Um, so one of the 
surprises of the recovery from the COVID recession is how quickly the unemployment rate has fallen and how quickly we've reached a position of shortages where literally people are having trouble getting certain goods because the demand for goods is so strong, the ports are backed up, et cetera, and so on. So at this point, further stimulus um, might not have that much beneficial effect. We need a little bit of time for the so-called supply side of the economy to catch up and eliminate some of these shortages that are occurring. I may be wrong, but I believe that the major motivation for Biden's proposal is more long-run economic growth rather than just like recovering from the COVID recession. So I think if you look at the bills, the two bills, you'll see programs that are intended to be sort of permanent, or at least hopefully will be permanent in their view. Um, You know, things like child uh, tax credits, you know, infrastructure projects, which in many cases, they won't even start construction for many years because in America, infrastructure often requires a lot of planning before you can actually start construction. So these are, in my view, much of the bills being promoted through Congress right now are actually aimed at more long-run economic issues, either social issues or infrastructure issues. And um, the ones that were aimed at recovery, you know, quickly creating jobs during the recession, were more the some of the earlier stimulus bills that involved, uh, you know, paychecks, uh, not paychecks, but, you know, checks sent out to people of $2,000 or whatever. I think those were more motivated by the goal of getting spending up to promote a quick recovery from the recession. So those are what I would call stimulus. And the the more recent bills, I think you'd classify some other way, like long-term reforms to the economy or something like that, at least by the proponents of those bills. But wouldn't some of it to really uh, uh, change the infrastructure, which is failing badly all over the country? I mean, we could have another Minnesota well, bridge falling if we don't actually invest in this. Well, yeah, but again, I'm not, I'm not questioning that. What I'm suggesting is that when those are the motivations, that's a different motivation from quickly creating jobs to recover from a recession. So usually the term stimulus is used um, sort of like a a quick energy drink to get you going if you're an athlete or something. Whereas what you're talking about is more like a long-term healthy diet. So you'll have a long-term healthy condition, right, for your your body. And uh, I I think that the motivation for the infrastructure bill is, as you say, the problems that we currently have with the infrastructure. And, you know, I'm not an expert on, on the bill, so I won't comment on the details, but that's different from what is called stimulus, which is really using fiscal and monetary policy to get people to spend more. All right. So that's what economists call the demand side of the economy. If you're in a recession and you have a lot of unemployment, one way to reduce unemployment is just to get people to spend more. As they spend more, businesses will hire more. That'll reduce the unemployment rate. Now, if you do too much of that, you get inflation. And some people have already claimed that we've actually overshot. We have a little bit higher inflation than we would like. But that's, that's the, the issues involved in stimulus. When you're talking about fixing bridges so they don't fall down, those are more long-term structural changes that need to be addressed. And it's not that they're less important. They may be more important, in fact, in the long run. It's, 
it's a question of them being different types of issues. No longer is it about boosting demand or spending. It's more about boosting the supply side of the economy, the economy's ability to handle economic activity. We, we have to have the roads and ports and so on that can handle the economic activity we have properly. And uh, so what we're running up against right now this year is some supply issues that are partly related to COVID, to be quite honest. Um, you know, we have, we have a, think of our economy as two sectors, goods, the stuff you, the physical stuff you buy in stores and services, you know, like restaurant meals and haircuts and so on, travel. Well, under COVID, services have dropped sharply because people were trying to avoid um, catching, you know, the disease. So they were ordering things, goods over Amazon, and their stimulus checks went much more into goods than services. You know, maybe they would buy a car instead of going on vacation. And what happened is, as people reoriented quickly towards goods and away from services, is that the economy's ability to produce goods became strained. The, the trucking, the ports, the shortages of computer chips to make cars, in all sorts of sectors of our economy, they're really struggling to keep up with goods production. You might go to a store recently and see items missing that you usually used to be able to rely on uh, being on the shelf. And so this has made things more tricky. And in my view, we no longer really need to stimulate demand in the economy at this moment. We did need to do so, I think, last year when unemployment was very high. But uh, we need to have supply catch up and uh, you know, address some of these supply problems before we can move forward. Uh, I'm going to take a moment to reintroduce you for those who have just tuned in, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about labor. You are listening to Politics, a Love Story. My guest today is Scott Sumner, author of The Money Illusion, Market Monetarism at the Great Recession and the Future of Monetary Policy. I'm your host, Bob Bashansky. Now, you were talking about the shortages we have, and isn't some of that due to labor uh, yes, people were getting additional benefits by not working or from uh, unemployment, state, federal. But 17 states, I believe it was 17, decided to cut short that money because they felt that people were being lazy. And if they didn't have that money, they would immediately go back to work. But with the national uh, uh, minimum wage, only $7.25. And can you imagine trying to support a family with that? Here in California... In January, we're going up to a, a statewide rate of $15, and yet in an outburger is uh, uh, advertising for people to come in at $18 an hour. So I think the conditions have been poor. The risks have been great. These, the, the service people who have been out front uh, with the COVID problem, and they're not getting enough of a benefit. So I think they're going to hold out until they get more money. So... Is, does this have anything to do with monetary policy? Well, it, indirectly, I guess, because, I mean, the Federal Reserve has a mandate for low inflation or stable prices and high employment. And so the Fed looks at employment, and they have to figure out why employment is lower than it was a couple of years ago. It's down about $4 million, uh, from a couple of years ago, I believe. So this is a very difficult issue, and you've, you've raised some good points. Um, there probably are multiple factors, uh, and I'll, I'll just list a 
few of them that are people have talked about. You've talked about one that has been mentioned. The unemployment program was very generous during the COVID recession. However, that has been recently trimmed back, uh, first in those states you mentioned, and then in early September nationally, uh, the program was trimmed back to its normal uh, unemployment program. So as of today, I, I believe it's no longer true that people can make more money on unemployment than they could working. Um, other factors that people have cited um, for this is worry about catching COVID, maybe keeping some people out of the labor force. Um, some homemakers may be staying home because when, when schools were closed, they were not working, they were taking care of their children. Um, there were uh, there have been quite a few early retirements. So all the changes that hit the economy during COVID, the work-at-home trend and all, all these things going on um, pushed some people toward baby boomers towards retirement. And I think, quite frankly, the boom in the stock market made it possible for some baby boomers to retire earlier than they expected. Um, so um, I'm sure there's other factors, too. Some people suggest the stimulus checks have made people a little more picky about jobs. You mentioned the low wages and maybe workers aren't willing to work. I think that that's perhaps part of the story, but you have to remember the, the, the minimum wage was also low before the COVID crisis hit, and we had higher employment. So I think any story you tell about wages not being high enough have to somehow be combined with the COVID disruption. Like something has clearly happened with COVID that has reduced the labor force to some extent. It could be the disease itself. It could be the way policymakers reacted by putting money into the economy. Uh, or whatever you think it is, but um, definitely there is a <clears throat> reduction. Now, during this year, employment has been rising relatively briskly. So I said we're down about 4 million jobs. We were down much more sharply uh, earlier in the year. So there is some evidence that jobs are coming back, and you know maybe we can recover all those jobs lost. That We'll have to wait and see how that plays out. It's also possible that we'll never um, get back to the, the same employment ratio, that maybe there are permanent changes in the economy uh, that, that cause people to want to retire earlier or whatever. Uh, but it, it certainly looks like we're going to recover a lot of the, the jobs we've lost during COVID. At least we're on track, too. One of the things you talked about in your book was the gold standard that we had been on until FDR started changing things. And then I think it was during Nixon's time that it was totally changed. Uh, you point out that during the gold standard, uh, the uh, amount of inflation was almost at zero. Uh, but uh, when we went to uh, no gold and the fiat uh, currency system. That means that we're using paper money not backed up by a particular commodity. Uh, that that gave the Fed more flexibility. Uh, there are some people that want us to go back to the gold standard. Why would they want to do that? Well, the reason they cite is what you mentioned about the average inflation rate being zero. So I emphasize average because during the gold standard, the actual inflation rate bounced around, but it bounced around between positive and negative numbers. So you might have prices go up 5% one year, but go down 5% the next year. All right? And the long-term trend was roughly zero inflation. So it may be hard to believe, but if you go back to 
when Franklin Roosevelt took office in 1933, the cost of living in America was about the same as when George Washington was president 150 years earlier or so. And in other words, there's no, there was no long-term change in the cost of goods on average. They, they went up, they went down in cycles. As we moved to a fiat money system in, in steps uh, after 1933, we went to a different kind of cost of living where it steadily rose. And so now the cost of living is, I don't know, maybe 20 times higher than it was back in 1933. Um, you know, things that cost a nickel maybe cost a dollar today. And so what's happened is we have this long-term inflation trend, and that's made possible by what's called fiat money or paper money printed by the government, which can be produced in whatever quantity the government wants. And they have tended to print enough to assure an upward trend in prices. I would actually break history down into three segments. There was the gold standard with roughly zero inflation on average, and that kind of got discredited during the Great Depression. Then there was a period of high inflation from the 60s to the early 80s when the fiat money system was um, totally unconstrained after Nixon left gold. The last break with gold occurred under Nixon. And they didn't really know how to operate fiat money properly. So inflation kind of got, you know, extreme, more than 10% a year in some cases. And then more recently, inflation's averaged about 2%. So now the Federal Reserve has figured out how to stabilize inflation for the most part at about 2% on average, with the exception, important exception, this year is quite a bit higher. And we'll have to see whether the Fed is able to get it back down to around 2% in subsequent years, as they've promised to do. But if you look back over the last 30 years or so, inflation's averaged about 2%. Most economists believe that system is better than the gold standard, because during years when prices would fall under the gold standard, you often had a big spike in unemployment. And the gold standard didn't really give the government the ability to keep nominal GDP growing at a steady rate, which is really what you need to have a healthy labor market. So um, it's not that the system worked horribly. There are some economists who think the gold standard was the lesser of evils compared to fiat money. But most economists, including myself, um, think that the current system is, is better than the gold standard. Uh, and in speaking of things that might affect uh, monetary policy, and this is one that I can't make the connection, so uh, I'm going to put it out and let you do that if there is one. What does deficit spending do? What is large governmental, that's the federal government, since states can't do that, what does the large deficit do? What is the $28 trillion uh, uh, universal American debt do? Debt. Yes, what does yep. that do? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. So, I mean, you could think of the government uh, like a household, I suppose. They can either pay for their spending from their income from their job or by borrowing money. Um, obviously, that comparison is not exact because governments hopefully go on forever, whereas you know individuals have to repay individual debts at some point. Um, what the government tends to do is sort of roll over their debts. So, in any given year, they usually spend more than they take in in tax revenue, and they borrow the difference. And when those debts come due, those are things like treasury bonds and treasury bills, the government will simply issue new bonds to pay off the old ones. So, in other words, individual 
bonds issued by the government are paid off. They do not default on their debts. But the overall national debt not only doesn't get paid off, but it's becoming larger over time. Now, uh, whether that's a problem is um, a huge source of debate. Um, my own position is maybe kind of moderate on this, is that I don't think we're facing any kind of a crisis um, in the near term from our national debt. But I also don't think it's something that is just not an issue at all that could be ignored or doesn't matter at all. Like, I think you do need to be careful how much you borrow, because even if the debt is never paid off, it has to be serviced with interest payments. So they have to pay interest on the debt. Right now, the interest payments are relatively low, very low, because in, you know interest rates in the economy have been low for some time. So in the 0 to 2% range is what they're paying. But I'm old enough to remember when the government paid 10 to 15% interest rates on their debt. So interest rates can move around throughout history, and there is a possibility at some point in the future that market interest rates go up again. Then the fairly large debt that we've accumulated in, in recent years will be more of a burden. So um, the current debt, is relatively easily serviced by the government because they're paying very low interest rates on it. And as long as that remains true, there's no fiscal crisis looming on the horizon. Um, but if you accumulate too large a debt and then interest rates rise to a higher level, at least in theory, you could face a squeeze. And, you know, we've seen individual countries uh, like Greece, you know, get into trouble Um Greece had the disadvantage of not having its own currency, by the way. They used the euro. So the U.S. has an advantage in being able to control monetary policy with the dollar, and that helps it borrow at a lower interest rate than a country like Greece uh, would have. But there is um, – so I'm a moderate on this issue. I think currently because of the low interest rates, the debt burden is not as big as you might think from the, the huge size of our national debt. But um, if we continue to run large deficits and get larger, and here you want to look at the debt as a share of GDP, because otherwise the numbers are meaningless. So um, to give you an idea, if we go back a few decades, our national debt was less than half of GDP back in, say, the 1970s or even 80s, I think. Now it's not only more than half of GDP, it's, it's, it's become greater than GDP overall at least the gross debt. So we've seen a, a big rise in our national debt, even as a share of our national income. And there certainly are economists that worry that if it gets too large and if interest rates should rise, the cost of paying interest on that debt could become very, very burdensome for the federal government. Um, so it, it's a long-term thing that we have to be careful about, we have to be concerned about. I don't think it's necessarily something where we should expect any kind of fiscal crisis in the near future. So let's turn that around a little bit. Uh, back in the beginning of the George W. Bush administration, Alan Greenspan was testifying before Congress. And because uh, whatever, if Bill Clinton deserves the credit for it or not, but we were running surpluses in our revenue. We were bringing in more than we were spending. And the, the uh, national debt was being reduced. And so Greenspan was asked, well, what would happen if we continued at this level? He said there would then be no national debt. So what does no national debt do to monetary policy? 
Well, that's an interesting question because monetary policy operates by uh, using the national debt as a, as a tool. In other words, when the Fed puts new money into the economy, it does so by buying treasury bonds or treasury bills, uh, government debt, essentially. And this, is, uh, this operation is the, the, the technique they use for sort of controlling the money supply, if you will. Well, if there's no treasury bonds out there, the Fed would have to buy something else. Now, they could certainly do that, and there are other countries that do that. The Bank of Japan even buys stocks in the stock market. But um, what I would point out here is if you didn't have any national debt at all and the Fed was buying other assets, it would become much more of a hot political issue because there would be much more debate about where should the Fed's um, you know, purchases go, like what assets should they purchase? Should they favor this market or that market, this asset class or that asset class? As long as the Fed is just buying Treasury bonds, uh, it's not that controversial. But even the purchase of mortgage-backed securities by the Fed, you know, was somewhat controversial. There were accusations they were, you know, bailing out the housing industry or something. And if they got into even more controversial assets, like buying stocks, that would certainly be an issue. But in a technical sense, the Fed could still control the money supply by buying alternative assets, even if no Treasury bonds existed. But most economists, I think, believe it's useful for our financial system to have a certain amount of treasury bonds in circulation because they're a very safe investment that can be used, you know, for financial purposes as collateral or various, or, you know, insurance companies can invest in treasury bonds for a safe source of income and so on. So, um, you know, having a certain amount of treasury debt actually might be useful for the financial system. But again, you, you don't want to have too many, too large a debt uh, because of the potential future risk it would impose. And there's a lot of debate among economists, you know, today about, you know, what is the appropriate ratio of debt to GDP? Uh, how large should that ratio be? And um, I think it's fair to say that because of the recent low interest rates, that's one thing that's pushing us towards bigger deficits. Like, when, when interest rates were higher, the government was afraid to borrow too much because they knew they had to pay a lot of interest on the debt. I think the reason why governments, um, especially towards the end of the Trump administration and during the Biden administration, have been willing to engage in much larger deficits than usual is in the back of their mind, there's the thought, well, interest rates are very low. So, yeah, we're borrowing a lot, but we won't have to pay very much interest on that debt. So it won't be very much of a burden. And, you know, in the short term, that's probably correct. I don't know what will happen in the long term. Uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, you pointed out in your book that uh, uh, President Nixon uh, pressured his hand-picked Fed chair, Arthur Burns, to juice the economy with easy money when Nixon was up for re-election in 1972. Politics often pushes economic policies that aren't best for the country, but best for the political entities in power. Uh, so how does that go into your mix of thinking through monetary policy when uh, the best may not come out of it because of the distortion of politics? Well, right. That's, um, this is an argument that people use for what's called Fed independence, making the Fed more independent of the, the government. And... Um, 
So I think that um, in the United States, the Federal Reserve is somewhat independent. And um, by the way, I'm not certain that it was just because of Nixon's pressure that the Fed did that policy in 1972. Uh, there's some debate about whether Arthur Burns actually wanted to do that policy anyway. But the, the point is that um, many economists believe that a, a central bank like the Federal Reserve will do better if it's somewhat insulated from political pressure. So we appoint members of the Board of Governors at the Fed to 14-year terms. So that's a lot longer than a president's term, and it gives them some immunity from political pressure. Um, whether, you know, some to some extent, this is going to depend on the individual. Who is picked as Fed chair? Are they susceptible to pressure? Um, I recall President Trump um, criticized Jay Powell at times when he raised interest rates. Um, but the Fed, you know, raised interest rates few more times after that criticism. So it, President Trump's criticism of Powell didn't necessarily change Fed policy, or at least it's hard to know. But, you know, the issue you raised is, is the one that motivates many economists to believe that central banks should be relatively independent, and not just the Fed, but the European Central Bank is also relatively independent of governments there. And it's felt that that would... Um, prevent them from doing things that have short-term benefit to a politician, but long-term cost. I should say, after the 1972 election, the effect of that easy money policy was much higher inflation in 73 and going forward. So we really paid a price uh, throughout the 1970s for some of the policy mistakes that occurred early in the decade. Uh, at the time the money was injected, we had wage price controls, which artificially held down inflation. Um, Think of like holding a balloon underwater, right? It's, it wants to pop up. If you let go of the balloon, it'll pop up to the surface. As soon as we took those wage price controls off, the, the money that was injected uh, created much, much higher inflation throughout much of the 70s. We're near the end of our time, and I, I wanted to uh, end this with the last paragraph in your book. Uh, tell me, the great 20th century philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein once asked a friend, why do people always say it was natural to assume that the Great Recession was caused by a housing crash and subsequent financial crises? His friend replied, well, obviously because it just looks as though the Great Recession was caused by a housing crash and subsequent financial crises. Wittgenstein responded, well, what would it have looked like if it had looked as though a tight money policy had sharply depressed NGDP growth, causing lower nominal interest rates, higher unemployment, and a wave of defaults on nominal debts. Uh, that really summed it up, didn't it? Right. Well, let me, um, do you mind if I read one quote from the beginning of the book? Not at all. To put that in context. So um, that was a takeoff on something that uh, Wittgenstein actually did say. So, Here's the quote I started the book with. Tell me, uh, the great philosopher Wittgenstein once asked a friend, why do people always say it was natural for man to assume that the sun went around the earth rather than that the earth was rotating? His friend replied, well, obviously because it just looks as though the sun is going around the earth. And Wittgenstein responded, well, what would it have looked like if it had looked as though the earth was rotating? All right. 
And I always love that quote because when people say it, it looks like the sun is going around the earth, they never stop to think of like, well, what would it look like if it looked like the earth was rotating? It would look <laughs> exactly the same, right? And so um, my the money illusion is sort of a play on this notion that things aren't always as they look. And so although my theory at first glance is contrarian, as I said earlier on, only maybe less than 1% of economists probably agree with my specific interpretation of Fed policy, I would argue that the way things played out is actually kind of how they would have looked if my hypothesis was correct. So even though it's maybe not the first hypothesis people would latch onto when they watch the crisis play out in real time in 2008, if I'm right, the way things played out is kind of like what you would expect to happen from that kind of monetary policy mistake. So that's why I, I put that quote at the end. It was really a play on the earlier quote from Wittgenstein about um, the uh, optical illusion of the Earth, or the sun going around the Earth rather than Earth rotating. And very appropriate. And I want to thank you. Scott Sumner has been my guest today. His book, The Money Illusion, Market Monetarism, The Great Recession, and the Future of Monetary Policy. Thank you very much, Scott. This has been an enjoyable hour that we've spent. Well, thank you, Bob. I enjoyed it. Oh, good. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been Politics, A Love Story on KZYX. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Politics, A Love Story airs every first and third Friday at 9 a.m., alternating with Byline Mendocino. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.